that God would fire us up once again and remind us that he is good and he is wonderful and he loves us. And uh, we would be so in all of that that it would move us and compel us to walk, continue walking uh, until we meet him. So I hope you're doing well this morning. Uh, today is the first Sunday of February. If you didn't know, uh, I think there's a football game or something tonight, um, but that's not important. Um, what today means is that after 10 weeks of being out of the book of Acts, uh, we get to jump back in to our journey in Acts. So if you've got your Bibles, I would ask you to open to Acts 17. Uh, and while you turn there, I'll go ahead and uh, give you the previously in Acts uh, catch up. So we began this book last April, and we hope to finish it by June, which will be about 52 weeks in the book of Acts when you uh, think about our breaks. And I believe today marks week 31. Don't hold me to that, but I think that means we're just over halfway with this book. Uh, but what we've seen in the first 31 weeks of Acts, uh, for those of you that are just joining us, is this is a book written by Luke, uh, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And he begins this book uh, by saying that his first account, the Gospel of Luke, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And then he goes on to say that this book, Acts, focuses on what ensued after Jesus rose from the dead, appeared to many eyewitnesses over the course of 40 days, and then ascended into heaven. And so what we have written in, book, in the book of Acts is what ensues after all of that. And one of the first major things we see in the book of Acts is the sending of the Holy Spirit. The sending of the Holy Spirit. Now, in our culture, uh, it's important that we don't miss why the Holy Spirit was sent. Uh, in our day of self-fulfillment and self-actualization, it's very natural to think, uh, especially for us as Americans, that the Holy Spirit was given to us by God for the empowerment of ourselves. That's what he was given for. That we can be the best we can be. That we wouldn't be losers, but we would be winners. But that's actually not why he gave us the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's quite the opposite. In one of the most important verses in Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, we're told that the Holy Spirit is given for the empowerment of the witness about Christ in all the earth. That's why the Holy Spirit was given. I want you to hear that. The Holy Spirit was given for the empowerment of our witness about Jesus in all the earth. And the reason I emphasize that is because much of Christianity today is about your faith, your strength, you being an overcomer. But what Jesus offers us is to come and die to that kind of self-focused and self-absorbed life. He offers us a life that is focused on him and absorbed with himself. And this is why he gives us his Holy Spirit. So that every part of our lives would be saturated with his lordship and we would witness to the fact that Jesus is God. And so this is what we see in the book of Acts. People who have died to self and been given God's spirit. Now, living rightly. Which means, simply, adoring Christ and loving people. 
And this happens in the book as uh, they gather for worship, community, communion, and prayer. And this gathering becomes known as the church. We also see that these new Christians are desirous to make Jesus known among the whole earth so that other people can share in this wonderful reality. Uh, We see that this comes at no small cost. As the Christians grow in number, so it seems that the persecution against them grows stronger. And we see in the book of Acts that obedience to Jesus in making him known throughout the whole world is worth our life. It's worth it. And now the rest of Acts, picking up in chapter 17, uh, will focus on Paul. Paul was formerly a persecutor of the Christians, but has now been converted. God has chosen Paul to take the good news of Jesus where it has yet to go. So this morning, our text picks up in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. Now, you're probably thinking, I wasn't here for the first. What happened there? You'll have to read back. My recap can only be so long. But this is the second missionary journey. He and his sidekick, Silas, are on this journey, and they've made their way to a place called Thessalonica. So let's pick up in the text, Acts 17, verse 1 through 9 is what we're going to be reading today. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Father, would you help us uh, to be honest this morning Would you help us to be humble this morning? God, would you give us ears to hear this morning? And please, God, let us see you in a way this morning that causes us to repent of our sin and trust in Jesus. Amen. So if you're here this morning and you would say, I consider myself to be a reasonable person. I want you to go ahead and raise your hand. I consider myself to be a reasonable person. ton of you are afraid, and I understand that, but this is not a gotcha trick. You're just a reasonable person, okay? All right, now you can put your hands down. I know for fear of public shame and being wrong, there are many of you that have just decided you'll never answer anything in public, and uh, there's grace for you, okay? 
but here's what I would say. I would say that I don't think anybody in this room this morning would actually admit, if pressed, that they are absolutely an unreasonable person. I don't think anybody would admit that, okay? I actually have never met anyone who, upon meeting them, looked at me and said, listen, there's some things you need to know about me. Uh, one is, don't ever try and reason with me about anything because I've decided I'm living my life apart from reason. Absolutely without reason. This is how I've chose to live my life. I've never met anybody like that. However, I'm sure that we've all met plenty of people who it seems that's exactly the way they live their life. They just won't admit it. Amen? Now stop thinking of specific people. Remember that somebody in this room is probably thinking of you. It might be the person you're married to. But the reason I bring this up this morning is because in our text, Paul and Silas are arriving in Thessalonica, and verse 2 tells us that Paul went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three days, that's three weeks, he reasoned with them, all those who were in the synagogue, from the scriptures. We'll also see him do this in next week's text, although it's not stated specifically. Look, go ahead and look down in verse 10. When they arrived in Berea, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And what can we infer that they did there? Reason from the scriptures, right? Because the very next verse tells us that these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So that's how the Bereans responded to Paul's reasoning from the scriptures. So what we have in our text this morning and next week's passage is somewhat of a contrast that Luke intentionally sets up. The contrast is of the response of the Jews in Thessalonica and the response of the Jews in Berea. And it seems like the Jews in Thessalonica were unreasonable and the Jews in Berea were reasonable. Now, I could preach today a message about the value of being a reasonable person. And that might be good for some of you to hear. I'm sure my wife is thinking, Corey, that'd probably be good for you to hear. But that's not where we're going to spend our time this morning or next week. Because I want you to get this. I believe that reasonableness is a fruit grown from a root, but I believe, this is even more important, that what soil that fruit is grown from matters. Let me explain. We live in a world today that would say evangelical Christians are, for the most part, very unreasonable people. The world would say they're so rigid uh, and not willing to look at facts. Some would even say certain sects of evangelical Christians, possibly our camp, are not only unreasonable and rigid, but downright mean. And this is really odd because evangelical Christians would probably say the same thing about the world, right? So who's right? Well, I want you to look back at verse 2 and 3. It says, Paul went in and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from, and I want you to underline, circle, highlight this next part, from the scriptures. 
explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So what was Paul's soil that his reasoning and conclusions grew out of? It was the soil of God's word. It was the scriptures. Paul had subjected himself, better yet, he had bound himself to God's word. And this led to him explaining and proving from the scriptures that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, that Jesus is the very God, Yahweh, whom these people claim to worship. And he did this by showing them all the places where it's obvious in the scriptures that the promised one would suffer and rise from the dead. But you see, many of the Jewish people had highlighted the stuff they liked in the scriptures and low-lighted the stuff that was difficult for them in the scriptures. Sound familiar? And what had happened because of this was that they had traditions and beliefs that were out of touch with God's word. We could say it this way. These Jews of Thessalonica had become unbound from God's word. This is making sense now, right? Rather than all of their conclusions about what kind of Christ they were to be waiting for, growing out of the soil of God's word, they had in many ways syncretized to the culture, just like Carlton talked about a few Sundays ago. This led them to rejecting a suffering servant named Jesus because he's not the Christ they wanted. But this also revealed that their hearts were out of step with the character of God or that they were unbound from God's word. So this morning's message is entitled Unbound. And this week we're going to focus on these Jews in Thessalonica and next week Ryan will focus on the Jews in Berea who were bound to the scriptures. And what we're going to see this morning is what life is like when you live unbound from the word that the eternal God of the universe has given us. So let's look back at our text. After Paul reasons with them from the scriptures about Jesus, verse 4 says, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But even though they had success with people, the Jews were what? Jealous. They were jealous. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen the Jews get jealous in the book of Acts. In Acts 5, the high priest is filled with jealousy uh, at the successful ministry of the apostles. And in Acts 13, when the Jews saw that uh, Paul was gathering large crowds, they were also filled with jealousy. And we were all sitting here this morning would know, like, it's a natural human tendency uh, to be jealous of someone who has more success than you, right? But rarely does this type of jealousy lead to gathering a mob and chasing people 45 miles down the road, right? Like rarely does that happen. So we've got to ask the question, is something else at play here? I think so. 
In the Greek, we have several iterations of the word that translates jealous. But this specific iteration of the Greek word found in our text is not the same one used by Luke to describe the jealousy that we just talked about in the Jewish leaders in Acts 5 or Acts 13. Rather, the only time Luke uses this specific word is back in Acts 7 when he's recounting Stephen's sermon that he gives right before he's martyred, becoming the first Christian martyr. In that section of his sermon, Stephen recounts that Abraham becomes the father of Isaac, Isaac becomes the father of Jacob, and Jacob had the 12 patriarchs, which as we know will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And in chapter 7, verse 9, we read that the patriarchs were jealous, there's our word, of Joseph, and they sold him into slavery, but God was with him. Now, some of us know a lot more about the story of Joseph than others, uh, but to give you a quick recap, Joseph was at one time Jacob's youngest son, and he was really loved, so loved that his dad gave him a coat of what? Many colors. We know this, right? Um, And this really uh, upset his brothers. This act, coupled with God giving Joseph some prophetic dreams about his future, which involved what? Him ruling over his brothers, made his brothers very, very jealous. They were jealous because they thought, who's this little runt, this man who for some reason, has our father's favor and says he's going to rule over us. Their jealousy for their brother consumed them, and they decided to make sure these dreams of him ruling over them did not come to fruition. So what did they do? They decided to kill him. And they ended up selling him into slavery instead. But either way, they thought, this will squash these plans of him ruling over us. So they thought. But what Joseph's brothers would soon learn is that you can't stop the plans of God. Joseph would suffer for many years but ultimately be raised up to second in command in Egypt just under Pharaoh uh, and rule over not only his brothers but all of Egypt. Now back to the Jews in our text. Was their jealousy aimed at Paul? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, in a sense, he was the target of their jealousy, just like Joseph was the target of his brother's jealousy. However, this is important, Joseph didn't contrive uh, on his own these visions of ruling over his brothers, nor did Paul come up with the good news that he was explaining and proving from the scriptures that Jesus was indeed the Christ. So I want you to not miss this connection. I believe that it was mainly Joseph's message from his visions given to him by God that made his brothers jealous enough to throw him into a pit. And likewise, it was the message that Paul was preaching given to him by God from God's word that made these men jealous enough to run him out of the city. You tracking with me? Joseph's brothers did not want this little runt ruling over them. And these Thessalonican Jews did not want Jesus as their Christ. So when Paul's preaching this, 
They are in utter rejection of this. Why? Well, because in their minds, they've entered into a religious agreement with God already. And in their religious agreement with God, lines have been drawn. It was an agreement that they could manage. God expects this of me, and I can give that. God says, I have to do this. That's fine. I'll do that. But this was their own unbound interpretation of God's word. The person that Paul is proving and explaining from the scriptures to be their God, their Christ, is a wild man. He's a wild man. I mean, I want you to think about Jesus as the Jewish people would have saw him. A man who teaches things like, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder, but I tell you, everyone that hates his brother is liable to judgment. A man who says, now I know you've been told that you can divorce your wife, um, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery with her. You remember when he said that in the scriptures in Matthew 19, what the, res- the response of the disciples? That was so radical for them. Their response was literally this. Well, it's better not to marry then. Like, that's written. <laughs> they say that. If that's the only out, it's better not to marry. Jesus also said things like, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, Go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse from the one who seeks to borrow from you. (laughs) I mean, let's be honest. The man who Paul is claiming to be the Christ is a radical figure. I didn't even mention the stuff he said about loving your enemies or befriending sinners and the dregs of society. Jesus Christ is a bit of a character for people to follow. But why? Well, because Jesus' way is not like our way. In Matthew 20, when some of the uh, disciples have become irritated because the sons of Zebedee, the, the sons of thunder, you know, James and John, their mama, she came and said, I want my boys to have place of prominence in your kingdom, Jesus. And all the disciples are like, what the heck, man? What are y'all trying to get a leg up on us for? And Jesus looks at them all and says this, guys, he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it, their power, over them. And the great one exercise their authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, this kind of philosophy messes things up for us. It takes our neatly defined worldview of how things are supposed to work in a society and does what with it? 
turns it upside down. And that's exactly why the Jews of Thessalonica were so angry. Look at verse six, five and six. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, listen to what they shout. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Why do they say that? Well, you see, because these Jews believe that the gospel of grace and this suffering servant Christ thing is absurd. You can't just give grace to undeserving people. Like, what kind of world are you going to live in if everybody just gets grace? You can't let people walk all over you. What about justice? What about punishment? What about order? If these people want to be saved, then they need to start acting righteous and earn their salvation. Don't rely on the righteousness of another. <laughs> you just hear their arguments. But this is the kind of stuff that you start to think and say when your heart has become unbound from the scriptures. With the God of the scriptures. Now, I want to be fair, these Jews aren't here today. But if they were and they heard me say that they were unbound from the scriptures, they would laugh at me. Why? Because they knew more scripture and had more scripture memorized than I probably ever will. But this is important, church. This is really important. Knowledge of the word does not mean that you are bound to the word. Doesn't mean you're bound to it just because you have knowledge of it. Just as we professed earlier, we must attend the word with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Receive it with faith, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. That's what it means to be bound to it. But more from Ryan Limbaugh next week on that. What we see in our scripture is Thessalonican Jews who are unbound from the scriptures. They claim to believe in a God of a book, but when that God stood before them in a person, Jesus, and who was professed to them by Paul, they did what? They rejected him. Thus proving that they were actually never truly bound to his word. They just had knowledge of it. Church, this still happens all the time in 2021. Still happens. These Jews were unable to hear Paul's reasoning, his explaining, and his proving, not because they cognitively disagreed with his arguments. Rather, they disagreed with him because their hearts were proud and they did not like the message he was preaching. Their way seemed right to them, and in their own eyes, they were justified. I want you to think for a moment with me about the culture we live in. A culture that justifies killing the unborn. A culture that justifies allowing children to choose their own gender and have sex change surgery as early as they want. 
This type of culture is obviously unbound from Scripture. Now, don't get me wrong. They would claim not to be unreasonable. They have their reasons. They use science to back up their philosophies. But let me just give you a little insight to their reasoning of science. In the 1970s, the American Psychiatric Association listed homosexuality and transgenderism as brain disorders. That's in the 70s. Now, I want you to think for a moment what science has done for a man or a woman who might have been 14 years old in the 70s and is feeling strong desires and emotions for same-sex attraction. Science told them, you got a brain disorder. I just want you to sit and think, like, what kind of stuff is that? As a 14-year-old, you're going through all these different crazy erratic emotions, and you're feeling attraction for someone of the same sex, and you're told you have a brain disorder. I want us to be really careful, because there might have been some of you in the 70s that agreed with this kind of science. And there might be some of you who's sitting in this room right now who agree with this kind of science, but I don't. Scripture never teaches me about a brain disorder that causes people to like the same sex or want to be the opposite sex. It does teach me about a heart disorder that we all have, all of us have, that causes us to rebel against our Creator and His order in a multitude of ways. And this is just one of them. You see where I'm going? I want you to think about that 14-year-old now in 2021, a 14-year-old, that science is telling today, if you want to be a different gender, you need to go ahead and get that surgery, and things will be just fine for you. What is science going to be saying to that 14-year-old 50 years from now? Who knows? Because the reasoning is growing out of a soul that is always changing. And we easily know this. Like, I could ask you in here, how old were dinosaurs when you were in high school? They were a lot older when you were there than when I was there. And they were a lot younger. We, we have no idea, right? And so it's like this kind of reasoning that's always changing. And so what I'm getting at, church, is this important that we as Christians think that we think about what Scripture says. We understand God's created order and His redemptive purposes. It's important that all of our arguments and reasoning base in the Scripture and we explain and prove from God's Word why we believe what we believe and why we live the way we live. Let us never reason with traditional belief or what's always worked or what sounds accurate, but with Scripture alone. Now, the example I just gave you is an easy one, right? Like it's, all, it's one we can all agree with, but I want to go a little deeper, if that's okay. Where have we learned most of the ways in which we think about everyday things and carry out most of life? probably from our parents, maybe from our own desires, possibly from professionals in different fields, maybe the culture around us. 
But shouldn't all of our lives, I mean every inch, be bound to the Scripture? Like, is it possible that we as the church would focus so much on easy and blatant issues like homosexuality or abortion and in light of our stance on them think, oh yeah, we're bound. When in fact, most of our lives are practically unbound from the scriptures. Like the way we parent. The way we budget. The hours we work. The margin we have. The way we use our home, our relationship to the poor, the activities we take part in, the entertainment we choose, the way we educate our kids, the friends we hang with, the careers we pursue, the way we think about children, the way we think about marriage, the way we think about dating. I mean, do you really want to know what God's Word has to say about your lack of rest and margin? Or what kind of upheaval might that cause in our lives? Because let's be honest. Like, we've all built our lives around all of these things I just mentioned. And if we thought we might have to change them to align with the Lordship of Christ, we would probably think our world is being turned upside down. I want you to think back with me to the temple scene. I don't know why I'm getting so emotional. I'm sorry. I want you to think back with me to the temple scene when Jesus made a whip of cords and flipped the money changer's table. You remember this? Some think that this is like one of the most out of character things that Jesus ever did. I mean, he made a whip. Like he sat there and made a whip, premeditated, and then went in and flipped people's tables. But I want to give you a little more perspective on what he did. King's Kaleidoscope writes a lyric in a song that says this, Jesus came and turned the tables we flipped. That's a much different way of thinking about this. Jesus turned the tables that we had flipped. Jesus is never causing chaos, (laughs) ever. Jesus is always restoring order. That's what he's doing. And if we're honest, if we're really honest, our lives are chaos. Maybe not what we would think of chaos because it's our chaos. It's normal to us. I mean, to those money changers, Jesus was one out of line, not them. But when we examine the scriptures, what we see over and over again is that we are messed up and he is perfect. Now, here's the deal. All of us in this room have parts of our lives that are unbound to the Scriptures. If we're honest, maybe we've not put much thought into the way our kids are being educated. And if we have, it's not been from a biblical perspective. Maybe we've never thought much about what it means 
to give sacrificially because we've heard 10% and that's doable. But here's the much bigger issue. Is your heart unbound? Is your heart unbound from his word? I've yet to meet a person who every part of their life is perfectly in line with scripture. Not yet to meet that person. But I've met plenty of people whose heart desires to be. That's the big difference. They desire for Jesus to be Lord over all of their life. They desire for their finances, their marriage, their parenting, their future, all to be bound to God's word because because they trust him. (laughs) They really trust him more than they trust themselves. And if that's you this morning, I want to call you to continue on. Continue on examining the scriptures and binding every part of your life to them. Ryan's going to show us the beauty of that next week. I'm excited. But if you're sitting here today, I want to ask you the question. I want us to ask the question together. Is my heart unbound to God's word? Is my heart unbound? If someone ever challenges me with the scriptures concerning Jesus' lordship, over how I treat people, over how I spend my time, over what I invest in, over my hobbies, over my busyness, over my lack of hospitality or generosity, will I become jealous and seek to dismiss that person from my life? You know, in 2021, we don't do the mob thing anymore, do we? Uh, We have cancel culture. So come at me in a way I don't like, and I'll cancel you. Corey, you saying that happens in the church? All the time. It absolutely happens in the church. But all this does is reveal a heart that is unbound from the scriptures, a heart that doesn't want to be challenged, a heart that doesn't want to be changed. And this is where we're going to end today. The unbound heart will leverage worldly philosophy and arguments in order to silence the lordship of Christ. Look back at verse 6. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they, listen to their argument, are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed, and when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason, they let them go. You see that? The religious people whose heart is not bound to Christ's lordship from the scriptures Use a worldly argument in order to silence and shut down this radical, life-altering gospel that will turn their world upside down. And I want you to see that this is still the pattern of the world today. What we're told from every corner of life is that the discomfort or anxiety or unstableness that certain things bring into your life are bad. Bad. Stay away from them. 
Avoid them. You should only embrace things that make you happy. I should only listen to those things that tell me what I want to hear. And if something's not the way I like it, I'll fix it. Rather than the scriptures being the key to understanding all of our life. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Our experience begins determining how we view life and scripture and God. Because living a life unbound to God's word is a natural way to live. It's the broad path. Because things are way less rigid this way. There's much more freedom and happiness that awaits you in a life unbound. Does this sound familiar? This was the lie back in Genesis 3. And if you're here this morning, I would beg you whether you're 75 years old and been in church your whole life or whether you're 20 years old and a new believer, do not live your life unbound from Christ's lordship that is delivered to us in the scriptures. Please. Yes, binding your life, your whole self to his word may actually make your life seem like it's always being turned upside down. But in all actuality, that feeling is you being transformed into the very image of Jesus. <laughs> As he turns back the tables you flipped. As he brings peace to your heart and teaches you not to chase appealing circumstances, but to rely on him in every moment, no matter the circumstance. Church, he's trustworthy. No matter what he commands of you, you can trust him. He loves you. You know how he proved his love for you? By dying for you. And this morning, if you would repent of your sin and yourself and turn to him, he will be faithful to rescue you from the penalty of your sin and the chaos of yourself. And here's the good news. <laughs> this is good news for me, and I know it is for you. He won't leave you to cultivate a heart that is bound to his word. He'll give that to you. He'll give it to you. And then by his Holy Spirit, he will work with you in creating a life that in every way is bound to his word. So may it be for our church, for you sitting here this morning, for his glory and your good and the good of those who have yet to hear that we don't live lives that are unbound. Amen? Adam's gonna come now and... Uh, lead us in a time of response. And uh, yeah, if this is your first time here, he's going to lead us in a time of response uh, with, with communion. So Adam. So as we respond to the word that we've heard preached today, we're going to do so through communion. And uh, I want to lead us through uh, one more um, profession as we talk about communion today. And so I'll do the...
part that says leader, and you guys respond um, as we respond as a congregation. So, uh, who are to come to the table of the Lord? Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sin, and yet trust that these are forgiven them, and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. And who are also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But those who do not repent, eat, and drink judgment on themselves. So as we come to this time of communion today, um, that's important for us. It's important to know that's who's supposed to come to the table today. And those who uh, are displeased with themselves because of their sin and who want to repent. And uh, those shouldn't come to the table who are not at that place today and uh, who, um, who aren't wanting to do those things, who aren't wanting to bind their lives in the Word. Because then you do, you eat and drink judgment upon yourselves. So what does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his shed blood? First, to accept with a believing heart all the suffering and death of Christ, and so receive forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Second, to be united more and more to his sacred body, the Holy Spirit, who lives both in Christ and in us. Therefore... Although Christ is in heaven and we are on earth, yet we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. And we forever live and are governed by one spirit, as the members of our body are by one soul. Amen. And that's us today. So uh, if you uh, have been given, um, I guess, well, are are they passing them out now? (laughs) Okay. All right, go ahead, guys, and we're going to pass out the elements. Bailey, Bailey's going to play just a little bit. And while we're doing that, would you just take some time? And if you, are, if you were not in the place today where you have repented and you're, you're wanting uh, to, you know, bind your life to the Scripture today, take a moment while we're passing these elements out and repent. Repent and be saved. Repent and give your life to Christ. Repent and ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins and um, let your remaining weakness be covered by the suffering and death of Christ. sing that chorus together. On Christ the solid rock I stand. On Christ the solid rock I stand. On the
and I long for the day when we can uh, enjoy communion once again like we used to, where we would come down the aisle and get the elements. Uh, this seems a little impersonable, but with COVID, this is the best way to do it. But there's a day in the future where we can do that together. We can go ahead and uh, tear the top off, pull your uh, wafer out. And on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. And we in giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen, church. Would you pray with me? Our Father, until the day that we sit around your table at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we drink and we eat to remember. And that day when we drink the new wine together, as we sit around that table together, Lord. Father, I pray that from now until then, Lord, that you would bind our hearts to your word. Let us not be people who are unbound from the word of God that you've given us, the full revelation, your full revelation here given to us. And we celebrate today in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.